Okay, so it is great to be back, and I feel like I'm part of the Chappelle's family at this point, so uh, thank you for having me. Um, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Historians uh, tend to convince themselves that what they do is relevant. Usually it's not. Um, but in the last few months, I've, in, and I think many historians are, are like this, what we've been going through the last few months has led me to realize that there are certain topics that have become more relevant than ever, and uh, like almost we're like we're living history, and, and history is cyclical. Uh, we very often make the mistake of, of believing that it's progressive, it is kind of progressive, but more like in a spiral staircase kind of way. Um, and it's, history goes in cycles, and uh, therefore it's, um, in many ways, in, in a very scary uh, sense, it's, uh, history seems to repeat, be repeating itself. Um, so I wanted to talk about that today. Um, when we, um, one of the many mistakes I realized in the last few months that we Holocaust researchers have been doing is that we focus on primarily the 1940s when we speak about Holocaust education. Occasionally we'll speak about the 1930s, uh, the rise of Hitler to power and the early years of the Nazi regime in Germany and their implementation of anti-Jewish legislation over the 1930s. And then rarely we get into the 1920s and kind of like the environment of Germany that led to Hitler being voted into power at the Nazi party. But I've never seen anyone, including myself, focus on the 1880s, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, um, that laid the groundwork of German anti-Semitism, um, which led to the 1920s and 30s. And the reason that I only came to that realization now in the last couple of months is that I had the great misfortune of reading the news uh, um, uh, the last couple of months, and when people start to say, "Oh, this looks like it's the beginning of Nazi Germany," look like looks look at the anti-Semitism that's happening, and right away you say, "Hey, this is not the 1930s. They're not. Uh, this is not Kristallnacht. They're not burning thousands of shuls and arresting tens of thousands of Jews and putting them in concentration camps. This is not the 1940s. No one's building gas chambers and." loading Jews onto cattle cars and putting them into gas chambers is not the final solution. So this is not a very good comparison. So we still have very strong democratic institutions. And just because there are there's a rise in anti-Semitism and a spike in anti-Semitism on the streets and on college campuses and in the social media and other places, but there's nothing really to be concerned about for the long term because this is not in any way a comparison to Nazi Germany. And that's true. There is no comparison to Nazi Germany right now happening in Western countries. But if we take a step back and we start looking at to the rise of anti-Semitism in Germany in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, then all of a sudden we do see some comparisons. And the reality is that these processes take a long, long time. So we think about then it took from the 1870s to the 1930s. That's a period of 60 years. In a country with stronger democratic institutions, maybe it could even take 100, 150 years. But, but the process is started, right? So, so uh, 
I'm not predicting any future, by the way. Okay, you know, the Mashiach is going to come and everything's going to be good. But I'm just uh, um, the, the idea is that um, that that we we could see things that are much much earlier in the process, and that would be uh, in a certain way comparable. And because I don't like reporting the news in any contemporary sense, and I definitely don't like predicting the future, so I'm not going to draw any of the conclusions myself. I'm just going to lay out what took place in the 1870s, 80s, 90s in Germany, in Europe in general. We'll try to touch on the United States as well, um, if we get a chance. Um, and then you can draw your own conclusions uh, based on what you uh, what you read in contemporary society and what you uh, are bold enough to predict for the future. So, um, the, um, there's one very wise assessment that, that uh, I like to repeat from the great Holocaust historian, Professor Yehuda Bauer, who's still alive. He's in his 90s. He's still doing Holocaust research. He was with us in Yad Vashem for many years. So he, um, he said that after the Holocaust, anti-Semitism ceased to exist in a public manifestation. What did he mean by that? He meant that it, that uh, today, any anti-Semitism anti- was very prevalent, right? Obviously. The point is, is that today, an anti-Semite w- tries to deny their anti-Semitism. It's not really anti-Semitism. It's, um, it's, it's not something they'll advertise and be upfront about. It'll come out in different expressions. It'll... it'll It'll be denied if, if someone is accused of being anti-Semite. Me, anti-Semite? No way. I was just bringing up points A, B, C, and so on. But they, they're not going to be proud of the anti-Semitic label in most instances. Whereas before the Holocaust, anti-Semites were really honest about it. They, they established political parties that were called the anti-Semitic party. They would call, they would start organizations that were called the anti-Semitic organization or the hate Jews organization. And in other words, the anti-Semitism was very clear and upfront. And as a result of the Holocaust, anti-Semitism is more subtle and it's very often denied. And it's very often you have to like find it and bring it out to the forefront. So when we look at anti-Semitism back in the 19th century, we're going to be very surprised to find that they're quite open about it. It was very in vogue and very, um, you know, very expressed about it. And that's the that's the reality of the pre-Holocaust era. Um, and and we have to get is the context um, emancipation in in Central and Western Europe, um, which is a long process. Starts with the French Revolution in 1789 in France, and then the Napoleonic Wars bring it to many other countries of Central and Western Europe, the ideas of the Enlightenment and the Emancipation. Um, Jews achieve equal rights and citizenship for the first time in European history. The only other country in the world that they already had that was the United States, whatever couple of Jews lived there in the 18th and early 19th centuries, just a couple of thousand. But in the United States, they didn't receive emancipation because since Jews were white and half of them were male, so they already were equal citizens with the establishment of the United States in 1776. They didn't need to get emancipation. But in Europe, Jews did not have equal rights, and they were uh, subjected to all kinds of limitations and rules and, and discrimination. 
and discriminatory policies, and it was only with emancipation that Jews were given their rights. You have to, that's a, that's a certain dynamic. It's not that from the beginning of the country, like in the United States, the Jews have equal rights, but it's like, now Jews are going to become part of society. And the, the, the theory was is that anti-Semitism would disappear. What was anti-Semitism before the modern anti-Semitism that we're going to describe today? It was religious anti-Semitism. The church, the Catholic church, um, uh, from the beginning of European Jewish history, um, discriminated against Jews in a religious sense. They're the ones who killed Jesus, and therefore they are you know, eternally cursed, and there's all kinds of um, limits on their, you know, you know, not just limits, you're allowed to have blood libels against Jews, and pogroms, and expulsions, and forced conversions, and crusades, and whatnot. This is, I think, well known, and this is a thousand years of European Jewish history. So the old religious anti-Semitism is, is being phased out. Now there's emancipation. There's also a general secularization of European society, um, and, Europe, and religious stereotypes are becoming less and less relevant, um, depending on which country, but, but for the most part. And, and the idea is that emancipation would make all prejudices and all um, uh, discriminatory uh, uh, stereotypes against minorities of Europe, and Jews were the main minority, um, it, it would disappear because now we're all equal citizens. And they didn't disappear. Now Jews are part of society, so now they can be more easily blamed for all the problems of society. Oh, Jews are joining society, they're taking over the economy. Before that, Jews weren't part of society, so you couldn't say they were taking over the economy. Jews are part of society, so now they're taking over the school systems. Now they're poisoning us with their, with their strange culture and their strange beliefs and their strange value systems because now they're integrating into society. Now they're going to intermarry even. That would be the biggest fear. It was the biggest fear for Jews, the religious Jews, but now there's a secularization of Jewish society also. So that, that, that all these things are going on. And in many ways, emancipation failed. In other words, it did not bring the end of Jew hatred. In fact, it led to the rise of modern anti-Semitism, which we're going to touch on uh, today. Um, so it's everywhere. Uh, uh, modern anti-Semitism is everywhere. It's very heavy in places like France, the Russian, Tsarist Russian Empire, um, obviously, very prevalent. It's in almost every country in the world, um, and, uh, and definitely in all of Europe. But we're going to try to focus on German anti-Semitism uh, today. So by focusing on Germany, I don't mean to exclude other countries, that they were perfect societies, but uh, the, for, you know, for... All, all sorts of reasons it's easier to focus on German anti-Semitism. Now, the German anti-Semitism does not suddenly appear in the late 1800s. Um, the, the, it, is, it is fermenting. There's the old religious anti-Semitism, which I, which I mentioned, and then there's kind of like this transition. So I want to focus on that transition, and I want to specifically focus on a few short years in the late eight, 1870s and early 1880s, where we actually see a, a rebirth, uh, almost like an explosion of, of anti-Semitism in German society um, that um, 
where where anti-Semitism really begins to appear in a significant way in, in German society and discourse. And there was also very specific developments that happened during those short years, and it was actually those developments which later had a decisive impact on Nazi party ideology and specifically on Hitler himself. Um, so this would be a very, very good introduction to what, what happens later with, with uh, the Nazis. Um, you know, Hitler's, Hitler was born in 1889, I believe. I don't have that in my notes, but I think, I think if my memory serves me correctly. See, so he grows up, his formative years are the early 1900s. That's when he's in high school and post high school. Um, and, uh, he didn't go to any university, but uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, he, when he grows up in Vienna um, in the early 1900s, it's in the aftermath of the anti-Semitism of the late 1870s and early 1880s, which uh, feeds into his worldview. Um, now, there's four personalities and events or organizations that they were, institutions that they were connected to in German society during those three, four short years, that each one um, contributed to the development of German anti-Semitism at the time. So I want to go through them one by one. Number one is a fellow by the name of, you know, German names, I might mispronounce them, so uh, you'll excuse me. Adolf uh, Stoker, or Staker, um, S-T-O-E-C-K-E-R, in 1878. He's a, he's a politician. So in 1878 he establishes the Christian Social Party. Innocent name enough. Um, now this is the first, he's a pastor, he's a religious uh, clergyman, he's the official court pastor of Kaiser Wilhelm I, um, the Kaiser of, of, of Germany during the time of Bismarck. Um, and uh, and um, in other words, the rise of the German Empire, Prussia, the German Empire. Um, so he's, he's a very prominent figure because he's the personal pastor of the Kaiser. He has tremendous influence as one of the most renowned and respected religious figures in German society, but he's also a politician. And he establishes this very religious um, political party, um, which is called, like I said, the Christian Social Party. And it is the first political party in Germany, at least, there were earlier ones in other countries, that had an openly anti-Semitic platform. In other words, Part of the stated platform of the party, like I said, things were much more open in those days, um, pre-Holocaust, according to Yehuda Bauer's formula, and and part of the party platform was anti-Semitism, um, and uh, and 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 it called for um, you know a, a Jew hatred and Jew exclusion and against what had been the recent emancipation of Jews in German society. He's this um, very charismatic, very popular. And the philosophy of the party is a combination of German nationalism with old-fashioned religious um, um, uh, uh, overtones or undertones um, within the party platform. So you have what's interesting about and that's why I put him first. Is what's interesting you have a little bit of the old, the old type of anti-Semitism and the beginnings of the nationalism, the the new type of form of anti-Semitism, and he's kind of like this bridge figure between those two worlds. Um, and this is seen, his political party and his speeches and his, his popularity is seen as the beginning of political anti-Semitism in Germany. Now, Nazi anti-Semitism, we mostly focus on the racial component, which is the strongest ideological component of Hitler's philosophy and the Nazi party platform. But at the end of the day, it's a political party. So it's political anti-Semitism as well. So this is the 
first political anti-Semitic party in German history. The second individual that I want to uh, mention is a fellow by the name of Heinrich von Treitschke. T-R-E-I-T-S-C-H-K-E. I for sure mispronounced it. But he was an anti-Semite. Who cares if I mispronounce his name? So, so, um, so Heinrich von, no, von, he's a, 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 a member of the aristocracy. Von is a title like Sir in England. Americans don't care about aristocracy, so we don't have any titles. But, um, in, in, in Europe, in Europe, uh, they had every, uh, all these titles and whatever. So von is, he's a, he's a, uh, a part of the upper class of Prussian German society. He's a respected historian and also a politician, an intellectual, a writer. So he's a very, very, um, uh, you know, member of the upper crest of, of German society at the time. And he is the first one to make anti-Semitism uh, respectable and acceptable in upper class society, the circles of society. Not like a rabble-rousing for the lower classes anymore. This is something that intellectuals discuss. This is accepted in the, the, the intellectual community, scientific community, um, because of Heinrich von Treitzke. He later coins the phrase, the Juden sind unsere Unglück. The Jews are our misfortune. That is his phrase that he coins in 1879. And later on, it's adopted by Julius Streicher, who has the most anti-Semitic newspaper of the Nazi regime, Der Stürmer, so much so that Streicher was tried at Nuremberg and sentenced to hanging um, just for being the editor of a newspaper. That was the power of the propaganda of Der Stürmer. And every single, it was a daily paper, Der Stürmer, every single, the byline of the paper, every single day, on the bottom of the paper in big letters, and you can see, you can look it up online, um, is the Juden sein unser Unglück? The Jews are our misfortune, uh, evoking this phrase that had been coined by Trotsky, and this becomes almost a slogan of German anti-Semitism: that all problems, no matter what they are—social, economic, political, military—are and can be and will be blamed on uh, the Jews. Um, this is a quote from him. I want to quote what, something he said. Obviously, it's a translation. He said it in German. The Jews at one time played a necessary role in German history because of their ability in the management of money. But now that the Aryans, Aryans are of course the German race, which the Aryans are already a popular use of terminology in the 1870s, 1879. This is when it is, right? Um, um, when von Treitschke is saying this. Um, so this way before Hitler develops the, the theories of, of racial superiority of the Aryan master race. So he doesn't make up, Hitler doesn't invent the wheel, he just takes it to its logical, more extreme conclusions. But uh, the underpinnings of it exist already at this time. So I'm continuing his quote, but now that the Aryans have become accustomed to the idiosyncrasies of finance, the Jews are no longer necessary. The international Jew, hidden in the mask of different nationalities, is a disintegrating influence. He can be of no further use to the world. So he's not calling for extermination or gas chambers, but he's saying that the Jews have played their role in history. They're not part of the German nation, and therefore they need to be disposed of, and they definitely don't have a place in German society. The third fellow, probably the most famous of the four, is named Wilhelm Marr. Also in 1879, 
He coins a new phrase. Anyone knows what the new phrase that he coined, came up with? Anti-Semitism. So uh, the idea is, you know, until until that time, it was called anti-Judaism, religious hatred. It was more religious-based. And now they want to make it more nationalistic, even racial, the beginnings of racial anti-Semitism. And therefore, we go back to the original race of the Jews, where they come from. In those days, European society believed we came from here. Now there are different opinions out there. So, so they said they're a Semitic race. They came from this area. Where in, in, how do you say that word? In, indigenous, indigenous to the land of Israel. So they were Semites. So anti-Semitism is against the Jewish race, against the Jewish nation. They're not part of German. They're not part of European society. They're foreigners, and they're a detrimental. Uh, um, uh, part of society. They, they cause a lot of damage. And he coins the word anti-Semitism in 1879. So the term is actually only 144 years, 145 years old. Um, and um, he was a writer, a very charismatic leader, um, and he took the philosophies uh, uh, um, uh, uh, that were already existing in German anti-Semitism by the people I mentioned before. He takes it one step further by saying that assimilation will never work. In other words, you're going to try, Jews can try through emancipation to assimilate into German society. It won't work because they're racially different. Um, he wrote a pamphlet called The Way to Victory of Germanism over Judaism in 1879. So he, he saw and he introduced this idea, which eventually Hitler takes up, that there's a inherent conflict between Germans, real Germans, and Jews, who not only are they not real Germans, but they can never be real Germans. And there's going to be a conflict, and it's an inevitable conflict of history. There's no way that that conflict can be solved or compromised, and there's going to be one winner and one loser. And he says, in the meantime, Germans are losing. Jews are winning. And therefore, Germany needs to defend themselves against the Jewish threat. And this becomes a major theme of Nazi ideology. Not once in the history of Nazi Germany did Hitler or the Nazi party ever see themselves as perpetrators. They always viewed themselves as defending themselves against the Jewish, a perceived Jewish threat. So this idea is already comes up by Wilhelm Marr, as expressed in his um, uh, pamphlet, which I mentioned. Um, and, and he says that, that emancipation allowed now that Jews are part of society, allowed them to control German finance and industry, so they're taking over the country, and um, and uh, and therefore uh, um, a Jewish victory, he concluded, would result in the end of the German people. To prevent this from happening, in 1879, Marr founded the League of Anti-Semites. <laughs> so there was the Anti-Semite League, right? This is like, you know, you have the NFL, right? So that's a league for football. This is a league for anti-Semites. Um, and, 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 it was, and that's what they called it. That was the name. It was Juden Antisemit, whatever it was in German. The Anti-Semite League. And it was the first German organization committed specifically to combating the alleged threat to Germany posed by the Jews and advocating their forced removal from the country. That was their official platform. 
Um, so that's an important step in modern anti-Semitism. The fourth figure... You know, yeah, sure. Just uh, Sometimes Arabs claim that if, you, if you're anti-Arab, you can be anti-Semitic, but it's not true because... The, the, the it was developed was specifically for this. Right. Yeah. And that anti-Semitic, if you don't like black people, you're racist. The only thing that has a specific name is being anti-Jewish. I mean, anti-Semitism is different than other racism that has its own name. Fundamentally different. It was. It was. It, it, it's. It's. It doesn't fall under the regular racial norms because this is specifically about this Jewish threat. Um, there, the fourth figure <coughs> that I want to mention is a fellow by the name of George Ritter von Schönerer. Schönerer. Schönerer has two little streichelach on top. So Schönerer. I think that's how you pronounce it, but I'm not sure. Um, Again, so we said 1878, 1879, 1881. All four of these people, their major impact is within a three, four year period. It's incredible that this is like a transformation of anti-Semitism in such a close uh, time. Um, so he's different than the first three that I mentioned. He's based in Vienna, not in Germany proper. Excuse me. Why is that important? Because at the time he's in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, not in any of the German states or after Bismarck. It's the, the German Empire uh, um, um, dominated by Prussia, um, but uh, he's in the Austro-Hungarian Empire with its capital Vienna, the Habsburgs. And that's important not only for his story, but it's also important for the later part of the story, which is Hitler. Hitler is born in Linz, Austria, and grows up in Vienna of the Habsburgs, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He's an Austrian and later moves to Germany. And... and he, this, this von Schoenerer, is the one of all the four that I mentioned, he's the one who has the most direct impact on a young Hitler. Because it starts in 1881, but his career uh, continues for many, many years after that, and, and uh, his ideas, his policies are all incorporated by the Nazi party, because Hitler absorbs it, and he, he knows it in Vienna during the time he's growing up. Um, He's this Vienna Austrian who believes, like many German nationalists at the time, in pan-Germanism. What pan-Germanism was, was that the Austro-Hungarian Habsburg Empire is a big mistake, because it's a multi-ethnic empire. And it has too many Catholics, it has Slavs, all those, Galicia and, and Hungary, and, 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 and all these Eastern, uh, and it has the Balkans, uh, um, Serbia and, and, and uh, all of Southern Europe, uh, um, Yugoslavia, what used to be Yugoslavia, now it's like uh, you know about 27 different countries uh, down there. Um, but all, all that, these are not Aryan German countries. What really should be is that there should be, and he uses this word, he's the first one to use this word, an Anschluss, which Hitler eventually doesn't just use, he actually does, an Anschluss between Austria and Germany, because the German-speaking peoples should all be one. And Hitler actually does it. In March 12, 1938, there's an Anschluss between Austria, Hitler's home country, and Germany. Um, so he's the first one to talk about it, that there should be an Anschluss, and this Austro-Hungarian multi-ethnic liberal absolutism empire of the Habsburgs, where each nationality gets some kind of autonomy in their rights, that's no good. We need German nationalism and pan-German nationalism. All German-speaking peoples are really one to the exclusion of all others. Um, and he, uh, he's a 
wealthy landowner, a politician, an extreme nationalist, and he's he he expresses uh, uh, he's very ex, uh, he's very expresses very strongly his um, disloyalty to the Habsburgs by 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 promoting pan-Germanism. He wears symbols of Germany by his rallies, um, as opposed to the symbols of the Habsburg Empire. He um, he. Um, he, he, he wears, uh, you know, the, the, the multi-ethnicism of, of Austrian Empire is something that he strongly opposed and he wanted it to be more German. He explained that his philosophy was a violent racial opposition to Jews um, and he expressed the racial component much more than the other three who I mentioned had. And racial anti-Semitism, of course, becomes the keystone of Nazi anti-Semitism later on. Um, he fiercely denounced the influence of what he called exploitative international Jews. There's also the beginnings of German, uh, of, of, of Jewish immigration from Tsarist Russia in the 1880s, from the pogroms that they were experiencing in Tsarist Russia. So most of that immigration was to the United States. Um, but a lot of, a significant uh, number of Russian Jews settled in Germany. So now we're being invaded by the Jews from the East, and they're going to take over the country. Um, uh, Schoenner promoted author- authoritarianism, right? um, the, uh, which, which was adopted later on by Hitler. Um, he, was, he appealed to the working class, mainly, although he said von Treitzke appealed to the upper classes, he appeals to the working class. He also says that he starts his, his, his movement um, he had, had very strict rules which were later adopted by the Nazi party it only allowed its members to be Germans none of the members could have relatives or friends who were Jews or Slavs before any member of his movement could marry they had to prove Aryan descent which becomes a legal feature in the Nuremberg Laws of Nazi Germany um, and they had uh, Schoenner was addressed by his supporters as their fearer, first one to be addressed as such, which of course Hitler was addressed like that, and he and his followers also used the Sieg Heil greeting. Um, I don't know if with the exact uh, salute, I don't know if they just said it, because if we'll have time we'll see soon that there's others who claimed credit for that special Sieg Heil greeting, um, but they definitely used some sort of Sieg Heil greeting to this Von Schoenner. Um, all these things, of course, Hitler and the Nazis later adopted. Um, Schoenner told his followers to prepare for a battle between Germans and Jews. He said, I'm quoting now, if we don't expel the Jews, we Germans will be expelled. Not only was this something that Hitler used, and anti-Semites throughout history used, but does anyone know the first time in Jewish history that that such an expression was used? We just lamed it in the Parsha two weeks ago. Right? Paroi said that, If we don't uh, subjugate the Jews quickly, then they're going to kick us out of Egypt. Right? So this is almost almost word for word. It's incredible that it, that it uh, resonates throughout history like that. Now, if it sounded like, okay, so we have four bad people, you know, if we wouldn't have had those four bad people, then everything would have been great, because it was only four rotten apples in an otherwise incredibly friendly German society. So first of all, 
they had a lot of followers, and I, I tend to be very skeptical, skeptical about leaders' roles, because leaders ride on the people. And these are undercurrents and movements within the masses of society which create the ideological framework um, um, for, for these, uh, for these, for anti-Semitism in this, in, the, in this instance. That's in general. But specifically in this story, it didn't start from these people. It started in a very, very specific subset demographic in German society. And from there, it spreads these ideas of modern anti-Semitism to these four people that I mentioned and to the masses of Germany. Can anyone try to guess where in German society throughout the 19th century the ferment of anti-Semitism began? Universities. University campuses. And, and, that's, and that's, that's probably the most important story we'll hear today. Um, because everything we said until now is a small story. The big story is what happens on German university campuses in the 19th century, and I think that's more interesting um, given today's context as well. And it starts in student fraternities. In other words, it's not even from professors lecturing on the campuses. It comes from the students themselves in their student societies and fraternities, and um, which had a very, very strong culture, much, much stronger than student fraternities uh, today. Um, the most famous and important student fraternity uh, that was there at the time. This fraternity still exists. It's a student, really, association across the whole country um, at the time and today. Today, it's, as far as I know, it's not anti-Semitic, uh, but uh, um, it just carries the same name. Um, but then it was it was called the Burschenschaft. Schaft is a is like a fraternity, a society, um, like you say, my Chavrusa Schaft. It's a Chavrusa partnership. So this is a Buschenschaft, a student uh, grouping, um, either a union or fraternity or association or society, however you want to translate that into English. Um, and and there's, uh, there's, there's uh, something that actually um, is overlooked in, uh, in, in German history is that the disappointment that Germans felt following the Congress of Vienna in 1815, following the Napoleonic Wars. Um, what happens is that Napoleon, is, you know, he's, his wars attempts to conquer Europe and spread the ideas of the Enlightenment and everything else of the French Revolution, and then he's defeated at Waterloo, and now the European leaders, monarchs, gather in Vienna in 1815 to decide how to envision Europe now that Napoleon is gone. What, what's the post-Napoleonic world going to look like? And that is called the Congress of Vienna, one of the most important events in modern European history. And, and Germans were not too, ha- too happy with, with uh, the results of, or some elements of nationalists in, in German society were not happy with the results of the Congress in Vienna. And that was because uh, similar to what I mentioned with von Schneerow before, uh, is that is that Austria remained the Austrian Empire and the later the Austro-Hungarian Empire, a multi-ethnic empire with all kinds of languages and ethnicities and cultures. And then Germany, pre-Bismarck, 1815, it's way before Bismarck, unites Germany, remains these independent states. Prussia and all these smaller little states, there's no unified Germany and they're separate from the Habsburg Empire, which is multi-ethnic, and Germany comes out very weak 
and not a very strong German in Central Europe from the Congress of Vienna. And there's a strong disappointment, and that leads to a new shift to the right of German nationalism, German unity, um, and, uh, and, and that, that ferment and that disappointment from the Vienna Congress is very much felt on college campuses. The young students arising, they feel we're German, we're united across Germany, and we would like there to be a united Germany. And the Buschenschaft uh, students, student fraternities, uh, that was part of their identity. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and therefore they become a hotbed of the new emerging anti-Semitism over the course of the 19th century, decades before that 1879 to 1881 uh, um, um, uh, stories that we described before. Um, now, uh, quite often these Burschenschaft decided to stress extreme nationalist ideas leading in time to the exclusion of Jews from the Jewish students who were accepted into German universities um, there was a liberal policy accepting Jews into German universities, but they were, so in other words, the, the university establishment at this point is, is uh, you know, accepting of Jews. But it's the students who exclude them from their clubs and from their societies and from their fraternities. Um, why? Because our fraternities are for Germans, and Jews are not German. So you can't be part of our fraternity. Um, during the 1880s, they turned increasingly anti-Semitic. They, they were always a step ahead, so it's, it's anti-Semitism is starting to spread in German society. The college students are becoming more anti-Semitic, so they're a step ahead of German society. In fact, even before that, it was the German college student, when, when German Jews received emancipation in mid-century, the first and for, for a while only institution that opposed emancipation was German universities. Um, they were opposed to emancipation of the Jews. So anti-Semitism really grows in the German university uh, campuses. Um, the anti-Semitism on these German and Austrian, which is you know German for, for our intents and purposes, it was vicious, prevalent, and and it, it predated the other uh, anti-Semitism that we described. Now it's interesting that in general, Central Europe, um, anti-Semitism, um, um, I don't know if you call it universities in the pre-modern era, uh, um, uh, institutions of higher learning, were always hotbeds of anti-Semitism. From Poland in the East to France in the West, from the 1500s and on, at least, maybe even earlier, we don't have great documentation from before that, the anti-Semitism was very much prevalent in these institutions for higher learning. So it shouldn't surprise us that in the 19th, it's not like the 19th century, it just happened just like that. It had been, in a certain way, it had been like that for centuries, and of course it would continue into the 20th century, and many will start to argue even to, into the 21st. Um, now, these German uh, student fraternities became more nationalistic with time, more pan-German with time. Um, they banned Jews completely from student associations both on and off campus uh, campuses um, and they made a special rule the most common student activity in the 1880s in European society was duels uh, fight, you know duels like an honor thing don't ask me why it's honorable to shoot other people 
but um, it, it, it duels were very common in upper society in Europe for centuries, um, even in the United States for a period of time. Um, um, uh, and Hamilton was killed in a duel by Aaron Burr. Um, so the the Jews were banned from duels, which is, I think, great, but it was considered very shameful that they were excluded from this activity. Um, German university students successfully initiated a public referendum with the goal of banning German Jews from certain professions in the German society and economy. So German students initiated that public referendum, so it spills over from campus life to general German society with that act. Um, student fraternities started calling themselves Aryan, and they only accepted uh, students into their fraternities based on racial criteria, which obviously excluded Jews. Um, so they're the first ones. By the way, this leads, uh, positive, look, always look for the positive side of history, this leads to the first Jewish college student uh, fraternities in history, um, which later produces most of the leaders of the Zionist movement, um, which later produces um, strong Jewish identity, even in secular Jewish circles, which preserves their identity and prevents assimilation. It's like uh, incredible. I mean, the first, usually the first ones to assimilate were college students because that was a complete integration into society. And here they were forced by the anti-Semites uh, out of the college student life and they had to form their own Jewish student fraternities and associations and clubs, and therefore that preserved their own internal Jewish identity, whether it was a secular or a religious Jewish identity. Um, so that's an interesting uh, side note as well. Were most of the early Zionists Russians Odessa Oh, excellent. Very good. So, <laughs> as, thank you for bringing up the point. Um, I think I might have even had it in my notes, but I, I missed it. There, Many of these... Jewish students in German universities were actually Russian Jews. Because, here we get to the next story of, 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 of universities and anti-Semitism, in Tsarist Russia, they created the first quota systems ever for Jews in Russian universities. That Jews were not allowed to be accepted into Russian universities more than their share of the population. And quotas would become a very, very distinct feature in many countries throughout the world of excluding Jews. That was one of the most famous expressions of university anti-Semitism became quotas, that Jews are to be limited in how many Jewish students are to be in, 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 uh, in, allowed into universities. It would later spread to the United States. We'll get to that, hopefully, if we have time. So the, 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 the uh, where did Russian, so Russian Jew, a Russian Jew wanted to go to college, wanted to go to university, and he didn't get in because they already had their captives. The University of St. Petersburg already had too many Jews. He's not accepted. So because of czarist anti-Semitism, he goes to German university. Now the German university did accept him. Because they didn't have quotas yet. Uh, they later did. At this point, they did. Right? So, and, and Russian Jews had a much stronger sense of Jewish identity. And they were the founders of these Jewish students. Because now they come into the German universities and they're excluded from the student fraternities because of German anti-Semitism. So they are the ones who found these first uh, Chaim Weitzman, Nathan Birnbaum, who later became Al-Tshuva, um, um, but at this point was part of the Zionist organization, and and, uh, um, and bring the list of them. But, but many of the early Zionist leaders were 
they started out by by in these uh, in these Jewish student organizations of Russian Jews in German universities. Very interesting uh, point. Um, so. Uh, They also claim, these German students, that their opposition to Jewish students flooding German universities was because um, academic jobs, in other words, jobs that required academic degrees in, in, in Germany at the time, uh, doctors, lawyers, those type of things, um, the, the Jews were taking all the jobs because they're the ones coming to university far in, you know, in much more than their uh, percentage of the population and they're taking all the jobs. So again, anti-Semitism already, what becomes a distinctive feature of anti-Semitism already from that time is that they're, they're the ones taking everything and taking over the professions and taking over the jobs. And it's supposed to be really, these jobs, are, professions are supposed to be staffed by real Germans as opposed to Jews who are not uh, real Germans. Um, okay, so that's, that's, um, that will take a little short break from German anti-Semitism and German universities, because once we're on the topic of universities, I want to give a few examples of how university anti-Semitism was expressed in other countries, both at that time and then well into the 20th century. Um, I mentioned the Tsarist Russia. Uh, that remained until the revolution. In fact, the most uh, liberal um, place welcoming for Jews in the world in the in 1920s was the post-revolution uh, Soviet Union. Uh, there, Jews were allowed to go wherever they wanted. It was, there was less anti, less establishment anti-Semitism in the early years of the Soviet Union. I'm very careful what I'm saying now. Less establishment anti-Semitism and and uh, uh, in the early years of the Soviet Union than anywhere in the world, even less in the United States. So Jews, you know, yeah. But 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 before the revolution, Tsarist Russia had all these exclusionary policies uh, for the Jews, including in the universities. But the idea of quotas was very appealing to many other countries, so it spread. For instance, in Hungary, in the decade, two decades in between the war, they employed a system which now also became a famous phrase, numerous clauses, which are number clauses. And those were uh, you know, a cap on Jewish participation in Hungarian universities. So, um, so the um, Jews were excluded. Now, Hungary, in, in Hungary, I mean, wasn't they were one of the first countries in in modern Europe to do that? Tsarist Russia was considered the pre World War One backwards Europe, and now Hungary, immediately after World War One, when Hungary gains its independence, one of the first things they do, and this, they're one of the first countries to do it, is to exclude Jews from the universities based on the numerous clauses. Um, in Poland, interesting, which had the largest Jewish population in Europe, three and a half million Jews, they were 10% of the population. So, but they were much more than 10% of the university uh, uh, um, students. So they first, they, the first they did was also quotas. Jews weren't accepted. And Warsaw University, and Vilna University, and Lvov, and there many, many prestigious universities in Poland at the time. And Krakow. And, but that wasn't enough. And as there was a rise in Polish anti-Semitism in the 1930s, which is quite famous. Most people who have read books about that time speak about Polish anti-Semitism, but what's overlooked is that it starts in the universities. In fact, they had one of the most extreme expressions of anti-Semitism before, obviously excluding Nazis and Hitler, 
um, was in Polish universities in the 1930s, where they had what was called ghetto benches. They instituted a new law which required Jews, Jewish students in universities, to sit in a separate side of the class. They had a separate uh, 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 part of the class which were exclusively for Jews. That's why they were called ghetto benches. They were not allowed to mingle with the rest of the students. And that was the Jewish section of each class. And that was such an extreme measure that many Polish professors openly risked their jobs and careers and tenure and whatever other important things uh, academics are concerned about to to publicly protest against it. And even, talking about Polish Catholic professors, it was so horrifying, the idea of just separating Jews like that in the 1930s, like in the modern era, that they, 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 some of them refused to implement it in their classrooms, some of them lost their jobs because of it, sometimes Polish students even uh, um, went with the Jews, but unfortunately, this became common. It started in the University of Lvov, it spread to the University in Warsaw, and then to Vilna and other universities around Poland. Not only that, but it caused an international public outcry from academic institutions around the world. And, um, and, uh, and, um, the, and we'll get to our, our last, last story here, we'll segue into our last story here, is that several hundred American university professors and presidents of universities, more importantly, Wrote a macho, wrote a letter of, of uh, you know, publicly uh, uh, opposing, uh, expressing their uh, their uh, opposition to this this act of, of of of. Now, never mind that in Nazi Germany in the 1930s they were expelling Jews from universities altogether, right? So Poland wasn't half as bad, but you know that was Nazi Germany. That was they were they were the worst, right? Here was Poland, supposedly a regular country. They're not in Nazi Germany, and they're doing these ghetto benches. So a couple of hundred American university presidents wrote this letter um, to a public outcry against this policy. Now, why is that a good segue? Because there was one university president, prominent university president in the United States, who refused to sign that letter. letter. And his name was... I can find it here in my notes, because here my notes are... Uh, uh, very sloppy and disorganized, James B. Conant. And he was the president of which university? Harvard. Harvard. Right? So Harvard University president refused to sign this machala against the Polish policy. Now why would Harvard be against it? Because Harvard was working as hard as it could to be the most anti-Semitic university in the United States at the time. So they probably saw this Poland idea as a wonderful idea. What was going on in Harvard in the 1920s and 30s? So, a few things. First of all, Conan's uh, predecessor um, was a fellow by the name of... Again, like I said, it's disorganized here in my notes. Um, Lawrence Lowell. Um, He had introduced quotas into Harvard's acceptance policy in the 1910s, uh, which continued for quite some years. And once Harvard did it, so, you know, then it's acceptable, and many universities followed suit. Columbia, actually Columbia was the first, excuse me. Columbia was the first because it was terrifying. Columbia is in Manhattan. That's where all the Jews lived. 40% of Columbia's student body was Jewish. They were being invaded by these 
second generation of Russian Jewish immigrants who were all flocking to university. And they, they, Columbia established the first quotas in the United States universities. Uh, then Harvard, Yale, uh, Stanford later had it. Um, these all these little liberal 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 arts colleges in Amherst and Williams and uh, um, on and on. Duke, I think, had. I mean, uh, there's a long list of American universities that implemented official quotas. Sometimes they tried to cover it up, but it wasn't official quotas. Harvard didn't even try to do that. But sometimes they covered it up as legacy uh, uh, acceptance. That if your father studied in Harvard, was a student of Harvard, and, and, or whatever, whatever uh, Ivy League University was, and, and, uh, then, uh, then, then you get precedence over any new applicants. So that was a way, like the grandfather clause, the way to prevent blacks from voting in the Deep South. So the same idea. It was, it was a way to... Uh, to, uh, to uh, you know, make sure that the uh, wasps uh, got in and not, and not Jews. So they had this quota system in place in Harvard. But what's even more interesting is that there's a direct connection, a direct line from Nazi Germany, Nazi anti-Semitism in Germany, to Harvard University. Because what happens is, is that there's a Harvard graduate named Ernst, his nickname was Putzi, Hunt, Hunt Stengel. He was born in Munich, but his mother is from this real Boston Brahmin uh, um, wasp family. So he goes to study in Harvard, settles down in Boston for quite some time before he moves back to Germany. So he's a Harvard graduate. In fact, he was a musician as well, and he contributed uh, to the Harvard football team football chants, which he later used for the Sieg Hale chants. So Sieg Hale chants came the same person, right? It wasn't just that they borrowed it from Harvard. It was the same person who had composed the chants for Harvard football also was the one who composed the Sieg Hale, Sieg Hale, Sieg Hale, that thing. It looks like a rah-rah football uh, 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 thing if you watch the old uh, Nazi newsreels. Um, so he, uh, he moves back to Munich in 1921. And a year later, in 1922, he meets Hitler for the first time. Munich is, of course, the birthplace of the Nazi party. And he funds the Beer Hall Putsch! The, uh, Hitler's attempt at seizing power in 1923, failed attempt, it landed Hitler in jail. But the one who funds it is this Mr. Harvard graduate, Hunt, got his name again, Hans Stengel, okay? Um, and, uh, and so he, he, uh, he, when he heard Hitler speak for the first time, he said, I quote, what Hitler was able to do to a crowd in two and a half hours will never be repeated for 10,000 years. He financed the printing of Mein Kampf. Okay, so he's a very important, uh, uh, for he, he composes the songs for the Hitler Youth, which he also drew inspiration from his Harvard days. Um, and then he becomes the Nazi Party's foreign press chief. He presented the fear Hitler to the international media. He's instrumental in shaping the image of the Third Reich abroad and countries around the world. And he say, okay, fine, he's a Harvard graduate. It has nothing to do with Harvard as an institution. You know, every, every, every institution has some, I don't know if Chappelle's, but most institutions have a, a graduate that they're not proud of, right? So what's it? It's nothing to do with Harvard. Okay. The 25th reunion of his class, he graduated in 1909. 1934, there's the 25th reunion of his graduating class, and there's a big ceremony. And he's invited to the ceremony initially to, as one of the guests of honor, because he's a minister in a 
prominent government, a prominent ally of the United States at the time. Um, um, and so this is a big pride of, of, of Harvard. So he's invited to participate as a guest of honor. Um, uh, so uh, so they're, they, the uh, Jews across the United States, 1934, is only a year after Hitler's rise to power, but Jews in the United States rallied around and made public demonstrations and took out media ads and to protest against this Nazi being honored by America's greatest university. And Harvard President James B. Conant chose a path of polite engagement over confrontation. And he said, again, this is a direct quote, it is not a university's function to incite political battles and, flan, and fan the flames of international discord. Okay? That's Harvard's president. Um, so, so a, an, art, an editorial in the Harvard Crimson. Okay, that was around then too. Um, if Herr Hunstangle is to be received at all, it should be with the marks of honor appropriate to his high position in the government of a friendly country, which happens to be a great world power. That is by conferring upon him an honorary degree. So the Harvard Crimson said we should give him an honorary degree. This is a very important person. So there was these protests and this whole nationwide controversy. So Harvard caved in and they said he's still invited, but now he's just a participant. He's not going to be in a place of honor at the ceremonies. But then they felt that they had to make it up for him. So off of the 25th reunion ceremonies, they made a bunch of prominent receptions for him, including one in President Conant's house. He hosted him. And, uh, and then, this James Conant, he published his autobiography in 1970. Why is it important that he published it in 1970? Because whatever I'm about to read to you from his autobiography is written with the knowledge of what the Nazis did. Later on, you could say, in 1934, no one knew how bad the Nazis really were. No one knew that they were going to kill 6 million Jews. We didn't know yet about the Holocaust, right? He publishes the autobiography in 1970, and he defends his position. He insisted that Hofstengel had every right to participate in the reunion. Um, you ready for this? Jewish students on Harvard's campus hung up signs around the campus protesting. The signs, One sign said, Drive the Nazi butcher out. Another one said, let's give him an honorary degree of Doctor of Pogroms. What happened to those signs? The Harvard Faculty Administration, whatever they're called, ordered Harvard Security to tear down the signs from all the places in Harvard University campus. When Hap Stengel was coming for his visit, so they put up all these signs of protest. So they said, we have to tear down the signs. The signs can't remain up. It's incredible. Um, so... Boston Jewish community, a year earlier, Boston Jewish community had organized a protest rally against anti-Semitic persecution in Germany. They also um, organized a general boycott for German goods, though many prominent Boston figures, politicians, intellectuals, participated in both the protest rally and in the boycott. Um, Conant, as well as Harvard University, did not participate in either initiative. Um, uh, not only that, there was a mock trial held by Harvard students and faculty in October 1934 to try Hitler and the Nazi party for the persecution of Jews. And the mock trial acquitted Hitler uh, in there. And the undergraduates, they presented the arguments, and Harvard professors served as judges in this mock trial. And I'm going to quote 
the conclusion of the Maktraya, the subject of Hitler's persecution of Jews is ruled out as irrelevant. Uh, the Harvard Crimson, uh, however, they mocked a different mock trial. So they mocked a mock trial. There was another mock trial held in New York um, at the time. And uh, there's a Hitler, the mock trial held in New York by some private organization found that uh, Hitler's persecution of German Jews amounted to a crime against civilization. So the Harvard Crimson wrote an editorial about that mock trial and it dismissed that mock trial's findings because Hitler had not been provided with an adequate defense and the Crimson also noted that the audience of the mock trial in New York contained many Jews and was therefore prejudiced. Um, I want to end off with two uh, short uh, points. I'm exactly at an hour. So we're ending off with two short points. Number one, personally, my father applied to university in 1966. That's a very, very recent Okay, I was trying to remember, I couldn't get in touch with him before I came in here. I'm pretty sure he told me he was Williams, but it could be it was another university. I don't want to badmouth Williams if it wasn't them. Um, they still had a quota system in place, and he couldn't get in. 1966. Um, he did get into Brown, and he didn't go. He went to Hopkins, where he was accepted too. So that means uh, most universities did not have quotas by uh, 1966. My wife's grandfather... Uh, was a German-Jewish refugee from Frankfurt who escaped, he and his family escaped Hitler. He was a young teenager. And he was a chemist when I knew him, a retired chemist when I married into the family. And I asked him about his profession of being a chemist. Now, he was in his 80s when I asked it to him. He was already retired. He had been a chemist for 60 years. And he told me with a bitterness as if it happened yesterday. And he said, I never wanted to be a chemist. I wanted to be a doctor. I said, why didn't you go to medical school? He said, I tried to get into medical school, and all medical schools had Jewish quotas. This is the 1940s in the United States. After this guy had escaped Nazi Germany to save his life, and he ended up in America where they didn't kill Jews, he still couldn't get into medical school. And because of that, he had to compromise and become a chemist instead, and he was still bitter about it when he was in his 80s. But it could be sometimes yuckies are bitter in general. Um, the last point I want to say is that uh, the, uh, one of the great intellectuals, uh, in, 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 uh, philosophers, intellectuals, whatever you call them, in Israeli society, Eliezer Shved, Shved, he was once asked, I, heard, I saw a, a video of him speaking about it, so I heard it firsthand, um, how could it be Germany, most educated, cultured, scientifically advanced, technologically advanced society in the world, how could it be that they were the ones who perpetrated the final solution of the Holocaust? And he said, I don't understand the question. He said, advances in science, advances in education, advances in technology have nothing to do with advances in morals. And it's wrong to assume that just because there are advances in science, technology, and education, that at the same pace, or any pace, there should be an advancement in morals. So it's a mistaken assumption. And in fact, what we should correctly assume is that morals stays here and does not advance unless something is done specifically to advance it. And science, technology, and, and education do advance. And what we have instead is an even worse situation. We have an educated, technologically advanced society, which means that they have the mechanisms and the wealth and the technology 
to act on bad morals which have not advanced, and they can do a much greater damage and much greater holocaust than a primitive, not advanced society can do. And that, I think, is a very, very powerful lesson as well. Thank you.